Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hello there. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, the show's host, and this is a show we talk about how complicated healthcare can be. So liken it to a 30,000 piece puzzle that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And each one of our guests brings their area of expertise and piece of the puzzle. And so I'd really like to give you a moment to introduce yourself and share a little bit of your expertise. Sure. I'm Jesse Gold. I'm a psychiatrist by training, also anthropologist. So I have a master's in anthropology. I actually did my master's thesis on pre-med as a culture. So I've always been really interested in how we train, why we train people the way we do, why the people that seem really nice and normal don't seem to be getting through the process all the time. And so that has transitioned into doing a lot of well-being work at sort of a leadership level in my institution and externally do a lot of advocacy and writing and have been sort of normalizing mental health, particularly in healthcare workers in whatever way I can. Well, I feel like that is sort of the topic of the day, mental health and healthcare workers and burnout in general. And I know that's an area of your expertise. Can you just wax poetic, be with like? <laughs> <laughs> wax poetic on b- burnout. So I think when I think about burnout, I think that nobody actually knows what it means. I think we use the word a lot, like we do a lot of mental health words, which is interesting because we don't actually like mental health for the most part, but we like incorporate the words a lot and like say we're depressed, but we just really mean sad. Or we say we're anxious, we just mean worried. Burnout, I feel like we just mean we are tired from work. But really what it is, is this sort of like mix of emotional exhaustion. So like feeling just used up at the end of the day depersonalization or cynicism. So feeling disconnected from work or the people there and then a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. So feeling like you're not getting things done. And when you have those things, which is super common in medicine, about 50% sort of depending on the study and who you're talking to and who you're assessing, you know, you don't want to work. And burnout's a risk for a lot of things. So I think about burnout as a risk factor for depression, for substance use, for then kind of going zoned in on what we do for patient error, for patients staying in the hospital longer, for decreased patient satisfaction, and then sort of zoomed out even more expensive for the hospital system because people hang out in their job, don't get a lot done, and then they leave. So while they're hanging out and not getting a lot done, 
that's hard because someone's picking up the slack, but also somebody in the hospital system is sitting there not doing anything and getting paid and then they leave. And it's expensive to hire and train. And it's really hard for patients if you don't have access to that one person who does that one thing. And so burnout has like pretty pervasive effects on the system and the people who work within it. And is one of those things that isn't sort of just a buzzword and is a really important thing that we need to be talking about in our field and not just like kind of using as a thing to talk about when we feel like it. I feel like there's this personal impetus on burnout where it's sort of like the individual's cross to bear, but it really can be the outcome of a system that is broken and complicated and not really meant for wellness. Can we talk about that? For sure. So I think that we love to frame things like it's somehow the person's fault that they feel that way, like especially with mental health. But I think in in physicians or healthcare especially that resiliency is used this way, which is like, oh, well, if you could be more resilient, then the fact that the system's inherently broken wouldn't be a problem, you know? And I think that's really hard for people because that's not true. What I think of when I think of resiliency is more like the system is horrible and broken. And we should say that. And we should say that like over and over and over again. But if you want to survive it and you don't want to quit, it's okay if you do. But if you don't want to quit, you have to kind of figure out how to deal. And that figuring out how to deal part is the resiliency part. And I think it is on the individual in some capacity, as much as like people get mad at me for saying that, I think it's a parallel process. So I think the system needs to change oh so badly. And there's a lot of things about it that need to change. And it's slow to change. But at the same time, the individual needs to figure out their role within the broken system and how to either survive it or leave it. And so it is kind of on both. You had mentioned something in your talk today, which was like this comparison to other workers. And so can you speak to the stats around folks who have maybe taken a survey about how they think that they're doing versus how they actually are. One of my favorite studies is on this like small group of surgeons and basically they had them do the male well-being index, which for all intents and purposes is just a very common measure of well-being in healthcare. And they basically had the bottom 30%. They said, like, how do you think you do? And we're talking bottom 30% compared to norms. So like lots of people have done this survey and they're in the bottom 30% based on their results. And 71% of those people are like, I'm average or above average, right? And sometimes people will be like, these are surgeons. They just always think they're above average. And that's not necessarily the case. I actually think a lot of us would do this, which is to say that when we're feeling bad, we can probably find someone else who's feeling just as bad in medicine. Or like we can go, well, I didn't sleep, but I slept more than John. Or I'm sad. That person's also sad. So I guess that's just medicine. And so we kind of get into this cycle of saying like medicine is a field in which we are supposed to not eat, not sleep, not function, mostly be burnt out and sometimes be sad. And because of that, it can feel hard to know when like your sadness or your burnout is a problem because it seems like it just is like an expected outcome instead of like, oh, I should get help for this. And then also if you choose to get help for it, it feels like somehow you're problematic because everyone else seems to be as miserable, but fine. And like, just because our culture normalized miserable does not mean that that's cool, right? So I think we just need to figure out how to be okay with the norm actually being not miserable. But even if we continue to have a system in which a lot of people are miserable, that 
it's okay for the people who realize that that's not where they should be or want to be, that they actually can get help. If there was a, you know, waving of a magic wand in a perfect world, like how, what would that help look like? And would it be individual or systematic? Both. So again, more like most healthcare workers would probably love me to answer this just based on systems. I'm a person who doesn't like existing when I can't do anything myself. And so I like to have both answers because most systems changes are not going to be accomplished by the individual healthcare worker. And so systems changes are going to look like what like staffing support, safety support, what does EMR look like and how do we make sure that's not destroying our lives? Why prior offs and all of this paperwork? There's just a lot of people controlling medicine that aren't practicing medicine. And so the system has a lot of issues and a lot of that needs to change. And sort of the individual level, it's like, how do I cope day to day to deal with this stuff? But it, but in order to do that, we have to get more comfortable talking about these things. So like, I think in, like peer support and, and supervisor support are really critical. And so I like to advocate for like a more open and vulnerable workplace. So for me, that doesn't mean that everyone has to be like, hey, I've been burnt out, la la la, or I have depression, I'm on meds. Like some of us need to, and I haven't, I'm happy to continue to do that. But I think that some of us just need to say like, I had a hard day. How's your day been, right? Or like when we're doing M&M and like going through these mistakes that we make in a case or an error or something, actually asking like, well, what did that feel like? And like normalizing actually having feelings about that stuff, right? We just don't incorporate any of that. And so it feels weird when we have the feelings. And I think if we normalized it more, we'd feel more comfortable talking to people when we're really struggling or that we think we're struggling and getting help when we need it. On the flip side of that, that you were talking about values and things that people care about and things that bring them purpose. It's sort of the flip side of burnout and sort of how do we reflect and think about or how can healthcare workers reflect and think about what is, you know, what they're grateful for, what they're happy about, and maybe that it can actually like tie into combating. I think a lot of healthcare workers hear that stuff and feel like it's really woo-woo and weird and like get really annoyed because it's like gratitude or like you want me to say positive things and I'm angry, right? Like it's just doesn't feel good, right? And I get it completely. And I'm a skeptic as is, but I think a lot of the evidence is pretty good on a lot of these things. And like what that means is that like outside of support, like supportive workplace, et cetera, the things that are helpful against burnout are like meaning and purpose. How do you find meaning and purpose? And that sounds really lofty, but really it's like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you get joy from? What like hour by hour are you actually enjoying? Like we never do that. We just look at like Mondays are bad days. Well, what part of Monday is a bad day? Do you have control over any of that? Maybe you don't because you're a resident. (laughs) Maybe you do because you're a little further along in your career, right? So I think that there are things like that that we can look at. Can we incorporate more meaning once we figure out what that is? Values-wise, is our workplace matching up with our values? I think we learn over time the way we like to be communicated with, the the way we like to feel supported, the way we like to do work. And sometimes our workplace can adjust to that. And sometimes it can't. And I think that's important to figure out along the way and then try to find either ways to change it so that you feel like your current place can line up with that or ways to leave. And then, you know, like sort of the gratitude version of it, like evolutionarily, we're designed to notice the danger of things, the mistakes, the errors, the things that can hurt us. 
And that makes sense, I think, right? Like big, scary animal that can eat me, run, right? But we aren't going like, that was a nice animal. I'm going to remember that, right? (laughs) And so, but we can, and that helps because we're so focused on the negative that we forget that like anything good happened. And there's a, a bunch of stuff out of Duke if you just look up like Duke well-being tools, they have a lot of these like bite-sized things that you can just kind of do a text message program where you do three good things at the end of the day and you just tell them what happened for 15 days. And that has evidence in burnout and happiness and well-being like up to a year, which is really awesome. And it sounds just mind-blowing that that's even true. <laughs> but you can do the same thing in a gratitude journal. You can do the same thing in like, you know, paying attention when someone says something nice and like writing it down, right? So like if I'm typing a note while a patient's talking, they say something nice about me or my patient care, I might actually put that in the note to then like take off later and put in a piece of paper and keep. Because we when we get bogged down, that's all we remember. And we don't remember someone said nice things to me today or like I did something good today or I helped someone today. And I think it can help us do that. It's not a toxic positivity of like, yay, medicine's awesome and everything about it's great and my days are awesome. It's like, you know what? Like the system's broken. I didn't like this about my day. And I helped someone and I helped a mentee. And right. So it's not either or it's both. There's something around those like, oh, did you have a bad five minutes or did you have a bad five, a bad day? Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of times we can turn those five minutes into carrying with us the rest of our day. Yeah. I mean, that's why like therapists would tell you, sit in your feelings, name your feelings, identify your feelings, because if you bury them and deal with them later, they get bigger. If you try to just like kind of stew, right? Sometimes the stewing doesn't help. Sometimes an attempt at coping to mask them just furthers it along too. So it is helpful to be like, hey, like I feel angry right now and that's cool. Like I'm allowed to be angry. This workplace is making me angry. Yeah, totally legit. Can you talk a little bit about being somebody who perhaps diagnoses burnout versus also somebody who has experienced it and maybe not recognized? Yeah, absolutely. So at the like kind of early on in the pandemic, I took on a role of well-being in my hospital system, really helping our department target and support the well-being of employees and was like doing a lot of outreach and doing a lot of talks and at the same time really seeing employees in clinic and was saying yes to a lot of things and feeling like I'm not on the front lines in the hospital, so I can be the front lines this way. And this is how I give back. I'm not at risk. I'm behind a computer. This is how, and I just kept doing and doing and doing. And I was falling asleep every day after work for like hours. Like I would, it was five, I was done. I fell asleep till nine. I didn't eat dinner. I woke up and then I'm like, great, what do I do now? And then I would like be up and then my sleep was all wonky. And it just turned into this thing where I was just like, it was this like unbearable fatigue where even if I tried to stay up because I knew it was bad for my sleep, I'd fall asleep without even realizing it. And I was like, oh gosh, something's wrong with me. And, you know, I kind of pushed it and pushed it definitely past early warning signs or anything like that. And definitely to the point where like, I was like, something's weird and wrong. And I went to a primary care doctor. It was like, fix me because that felt like the answer. And gosh, you love there to be something medically wrong with me. Like I have mono or whatever. And, you know, I had low B12 and I was like, yeah, they just need to like shoot me with B12 and then I'll be fixed. And that didn't work. And then I took a couple of days off and thought that would be enough. And my therapist was like, you know, it's sort of like being a boat with holes in the water and you took like a couple of pails of water out and you're still a boat with holes, <laughs> which was a, a kind of harsh metaphor, but a helpful one. And so, you know, time off didn't help. The primary care doctor didn't help. And my therapist was like, hey, so you're a frontline worker who sees frontline workers in the middle of the pandemic. Like, what do you think it is? And I 
couldn't, I mean, burnout was like not even on my differential. And I probably gave a talk on burnout the day before, right? Like, and then I started laughing and was like, I'm burnt out, huh? And she was like, why are you laughing? And I was like, well, I just feel embarrassed, right? Like you kind of feel like you should know because like, especially if you're like a burnout expert, you should know. But we're not very good at identifying things in ourselves or practicing what we preach or like whatever you want to say, like we're still human. And a lot of times people go to therapists for that very purpose, like to identify something you don't know. And so, you know, for me, having that experience, like informed my understanding of how easy it is to blow past a lot of the early warning signs. Like for me, being very angry at emails or patient messages or things like that are not is not the same as falling asleep every day after work. And so like the adjustments you can make are different. And so that's been helpful for me. It also has helped me realize like if I'm doing this, <laughs> like of course everyone else is, right? Like it's just impossible for like all my patients or everyone else in healthcare who don't spend like every day thinking about burnout, how would they know? <laughs> like how are they supposed to know if I'm not aware of it and I'm not paying attention to it or I'm blowing past it because I don't think it's a thing that matters. And so like, I think it's helped me just kind of put into perspective, like how hard it is to identify this stuff in ourselves, to take care of these things, to prioritize our own like well-being in the setting of really feeling like you have no ability to do anything but help everybody else, especially during a pandemic. And I think has helped me sort of say like, of course you don't know. Like, how do you expect yourself to know? I don't know. And I and I appreciate knowing that. And I'm happy to tell people that story, even if it's like vulnerable in some capacity, just because I think like they should know. Yeah. How do you advise for people to, I'm sure they reach out when things are awful and they're, they're at their worst, but how can we get better at self-identifying, understanding the challenge in that, that people should and could and should reach out sooner than they might be inclined to? Yeah. I mean, I think we need to pay more attention to our own barometers. So like, I can tell you the definition of burnout all day, but what does that mean to you? Like, what do you do when you feel like that? So when I'm a 10, I'm asleep every day without realizing it. When I'm a one, I'm like a little bit more snippy. Like I might start ordering more takeout. I might, you know, like these like little things that you sort of like blow past and you're doing, but that's me, right? What is it like for you? If you're actually taking stock in your mood too, and like your sleep and things that maybe matter to like your well-being, your emotional well-being, if you're paying attention to that over time, you also notice differences. If you don't pay attention to that over time, you just feel like everything's bad when you finally look, right? Like you're sort of like, okay, after two and whatever years of the pandemic, I'm finally going to go, how do I feel? And then you do and you ask and you're like, wow, that was horrible. I'm depressed, right? But if you had asked yourself two years before, would you have felt better? Maybe, you know, you might've been able to stop the 10. Not everyone, obviously biology is a big thing. Family history is a big thing, but I think paying attention to your own sort of center and what it looks like for you is really critical because you can learn a lot of things from yourself, right? Like that's why therapy is cool. But I think in general, like I'm angry right now. Why am I angry? What made me angry? Who made me angry? What was going on that made me angry? Am I angry all week? Am I angry today? Am I angry this month? Like what's going on, right? And like it really helps you. Like emotions inform like way more than we give them credit for. And it feels silly. We weren't taught it in school when we were kids. And we 
need to do it. And we spend so much time asking other people and like even just pausing and being like, hey, like, how am I this week? It's like, I'm not telling you to do it all the time. I think it's unhelpful to do it all the time. Like, you know, people who wear those like Apple watches or like Fitbits or whatever. Like, I don't think it's helpful when my patients tell me they slept like 0.1 of an hour less last night. That's not helpful. That's obsessive and scary and you're never going to be able to fix that, right? But if you once a week or a couple times a week are like, how am I doing? How's my sleep? How am I feeling? How's my interaction with other people? Like you just get a better sense of like your normal and your fluctuations and people's baselines are totally different. Like we learn about this stuff in psych and like you want to pathologize a lot of things because you do, but a lot of people have a lot of mood changes at baseline that aren't pathologies, right? It's just like they're more reactive or they have like thoughts that maybe are different than other people's thoughts. And those are just their thoughts. And so knowing those differences, you don't actually know that unless you ask, right? right. Like what's going on with yourself? You said something about just emails. You're like, I am the receiver of emails on a regular basis. And of course your patients are anxious. And so they're going to send a lot of emails. And then like all of a sudden you're recognizing that you're more upset than usual at receiving emails. Yeah. like. If someone sends me one more email, I will throw my computer across the room, right? Like that's a very significant reaction to an email, right? And I think a lot of people feel like that. And it's actually not about the email. It's not even about probably that one person who sent the email that tipped you off. It's like for me, I spend all day being asked to do things or being, or like having to hold things for other people and being asked to do more just feels like at a certain point, I'm just like, I can't. That's really what emotional exhaustion is. But sometimes that manifests in other emotions like anger, right? I love the reframing of anger. I'm some, I'm named Joy. And so I feel like I was always taught to not really, well, I've got to be happy, right? It's part of my name. And anger has been such a blessing to me in the last few years. And I'm glad to hear you talk about it in a way that it is like keeping us safe. It's protecting us. It has a job. Let it do its job. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Inside Out? Yeah. So I think like, I sometimes recommend that movie to patients and they're like, do you just recommend a Disney movie to me? But like, it's really helpful because it basically is saying like happiness and joy have their roles. Anger and sadness have their roles. Like they all have their purpose. And like, we have those feelings and reactions for a reason. Like we evolved as species to have them as reactions, right? Anger is saying like, something here is threatening me and I should run. Maybe you're detector is off, which happens to a lot of us, right? But maybe it's not. And maybe your environment is, or maybe that person is, or maybe that conversation is, or whatever it is. But like, you get a lot of cues if you start to realize like, what does anger feel like? Why am I angry? What's going on? And yeah, I don't at all hate anger. I like anger. It teaches me a lot. I get people who tell me when I, whenever anger shows up for me, they're like, I like angry joy. It's been kind of fun. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to lean into angry joy a little bit more. <laughs> it works usually good for me and for my team. You have been in a lot of like the public eye in ways. Is that, is that comfortable? Is that uncomfortable for you? How do you, do you lean in and jump into that? Or how, what's your feeling? I will mostly lean into it because I think that in the role I'm in, being able to be somewhat vulnerable is important. I think it helps to change culture. And I believe in storytelling as a method of changing culture. I don't think you owe anybody your story. And I don't think you owe anybody every part of your story. I think it's your story, right? And so you should tell it when you want to tell it, how you want to tell it. And there have been times where that has changed for me. My boundaries with that have changed. What I'm talking about has changed. I also tell trainees this, like, you don't want to talk about it when you're a trainee, don't. 
right? It's cool. Figure it out later if you want to talk about it. But I think in a lot of ways, I've become comfortable with that position because I think someone needs to be advocating for this publicly. And if it happens to be me, it is. And that's okay. Like I'm cool with that. I just happen to be a little bit better at sort of putting words together than some people. And like, that's also okay. You know, some people do the research, some people discover the medication, some people translate that for everybody else. And I sort of have fallen into the world of translating that for everybody else. And that's okay. That's sort of what anthropology is. It's sort of what I've always liked writing, sort of the storytelling aspect of it is really important. And I think you can't advocate for changing a system and changing a culture if you don't also advocate in some way yourself. So... Well, thank you for all of the work that you do. It really does make a difference. And I just appreciate your time and everything that you put out into the world. So if people want to follow you or connect, where would you recommend that they find you? Sure. Thanks for having me too. So easiest way to get me is Dr. Jesse Gold on most platforms. So Instagram, TikTok, the artist formerly known as Twitter. I spell Jesse, J-E-S-S-I. And also drjessiegold.com. I have all my writing there, like things that I've done. And you can message me through there too. Fantastic. Thank you for... Thanks again. You got it. All right. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.